0: Hello and welcome to The Garden Pod. Um, right, this it's a good one this week. Uh, this is great for parents and teachers. Primarily, we are very lucky that we've got a lady called um, Carrie Ewan, who is joining us at the school this week from the FCD, which is an organisation out of the United States who are working with schools, and parents and young people in communities uh, on issues around addiction, um, alcohol, Drugs and how we go about talking about these things and and, um, promoting good, healthy attitudes towards life and healthy choices, etc. Carrie's really inspirational, she's a a great speaker and she's running workshops over the course of this week here at school, Um, so there's a chance if if you listen to this in time that you can attend some of those Um, and in this podcast we really get into some discussions around uh, what kind of conversations should happen, what they should look like, how often they should happen, um, some of the challenges within the cultural context that we have here uh, and also the challenges that we have as parents, I get a little bit sherry in this, um, <laughs> which is, I'm not. I'm going to leave it in. I'll see if you can spot it. I'll leave it in, um, because I think it, it makes a point. Uh, but but a little bit sherry. Probably regret that a bit. Um, but anyway, enough of that. Uh, we've also got Emily Hopkinson, who is our deputy head of secondary, and she's the guest host this week. Um, so without further ado, I bring you Carrie Ewan from FCD. All right, welcome to The Garden Pod. Today we have a special guest with us, Carrie Ewan, who comes from FCD. I'm going to allow her to introduce herself in a minute. And our second co-host, Emily Hopkinson. Hi. Deputy head from secondary school. Um, Carrie, do you want to introduce yourself first of all, who, who you are and what your work
1: is? Absolutely. My name is Carrie Ewan. I'm one of the prevention specialists with FCD Prevention Works. I'm also a licensed school counselor from the States as well as a licensed mental health clinician, and a lot of what we do is we travel around the world and try to assess communities around looking at the level of health, and our main goal is to keep healthy kids healthy.
0: Fantastic. And FCD stands for...
1: Freedom from chemical dependency.
0: Okay, so we've got to focus on drug alcohol use. Yes. Is ma'am. that too narrow a focus for you? No, I
1: think drug and alcohol use oftentimes there's overlapping with mental health as mm. level of stress, which is a common conversation that we have today with students and communities. So we look at what is contributing or perpetuating this type of behavior, why somebody might move in that direction with level of risk taking. And, again, so the conversation can be very broad, but we do focus on the content and the data around substance use, abuse, and addiction.
0: Fantastic. And you've flown here all the way from Minnesota. Minnesota.
1: it's currently <laughs> minus
0: 45 degrees. Absolutely. To and you've working with a number of schools in KL.
1: Yes. We've been, I've been actually part of Malaysia's, um, as a regional officer for Far East Asia, since 2012. So I've been visiting schools in this region for quite some time, which helps me understand the culture yeah. and see some of the changes as well as the current needs and, and trends that both students and adults might be you know, up against and facing. Yeah. And you were actually at Garden two years ago. Yes, I've been, actually been at Garden from the very first time that they invited FCD. Uh, that was, I believe, in 2013 or 14.
0: Yeah, yeah. you've been here a few times since I've yeah. been here. So Emily, this might be a good point for you to jump in. Why have we got Carrie
2: here? We think it's really, really important that we are educating our students and our parent community about drug, alcohol, substance use so that we have a comfortable situation so that we can ask the right questions and students can feel comfortable in raising concerns, talking to people about the issues that they're currently having. So we just want to break down those barriers and start conversations and having Carrie here
1: gives us a vehicle to be able to do that.
0: And, Kerry, you're working with students, parents, teachers over the course of this week?
1: Okay. Year seven, all the way up through year 13. Uh, sounds like there's a, a large parental community that's going to be attending the workshops, cool. as well as faculty drop ins, student drop in sessions, so students during their free time can come and find and ask questions.
0: Okay. Is this something that schools you find are quite open to, or is this, do you have kickback?
1: And I say, many of the schools that we work in are invested in in the mindset of prevention because they'd rather prevent a problem from happening rather than waiting and be reactionary and have to deal with the consequences, which might be health, it might be discipline, it might be um, societal kind of concerns. So many of the schools that we work at obviously are invested in inviting us here to help assess and keep the community healthy. Culturally, though, hmm. the policies and family values are going to are very differ. And what I we really identify is just because something's cultural, it doesn't always mean it's the best practice or going to be the healthiest. Culturally, here in Malaysia, it may not be necessary to wear a helmet or wear seatbelts. Yeah. But when we look at the actual data and the results, that we know seat belts do reduce the risk. Mm-hmm. And so that is one of the messages, that, again, is Like we want to inform community members around the current research, um, the neuroscience around substance use, how it affects the developing brain, yeah. so we can inform them they can make a, a more informed decision around it.
0: So you're quite happy to challenge some of the cultural
1: norms that exist? You know, it's not even challenging so much You're trying to change, it's just broadening people's perspective on this issue, that we are from a health perspective. There's too much research out there. Technology has just advanced this conversation, mm. and it's evolved over the past, you know, every decade. We know more about what addiction is, the population that it's most likely to affect, um, and reasons, and also methods to, and strategies to help individuals navigate this more safely.
0: Fantastic. So today we're going to talk about one of your sessions, which you're running with our parents, which has mm-hmm. been entitled Everybody Does It, Misperception as a driving force of use. Do you want us just to give us an overview of what that might mean?
1: Sure. I, um, well, we study the psychology of human behavior, and one of the uh, research projects that we use is developed by Al- Dr. Alan Berkowitz and Wesley Perkins, which is social norms research. Essentially, it's looking at people's perceptions versus actual behaviors, and we understand that people will typically. We can predict the behavior based on what they perceive or what they believe to be typical or normal in their environment. However, what they perceive may not always be accurate, and this becomes really risky when that behavior is unhealthy.
0: Right, okay. So this everybody does it, we've heard that before. Okay. Um, so are we saying that's inaccurate?
1: Well, there is false um, normative beliefs will say. People's perceptions may be, or they may be actually true. So for example, I mean, students may come home and say, well, everybody is playing this game. Well, is that true or is that false? And so the only way we really can find out is if we conduct data. The challenge with that is for that student who believes like everybody's playing this game, mm. we can then predict the direction of that, that student may move in based on their attitude on that topic.
0: So believe everybody's smoking, yeah. you're more if you believe that genuinely you're more likely to smoke.
1: Yep. Community members that participate in and almost perpetuate this exaggerated false perception mm. can be quite risky.
0: And is this a... sorry?
1: Because you the large minority that's staying
2: quiet and the small majority, sorry, the large majority yeah. that's staying quiet and a small minority that are being very vocal about whatever behaviour it is, and that's leading
1: to this continuation of this perception of the behaviour.
0: Yeah.
1: It creates an environmental pressure. Parents definitely have experienced this. They communicate and they, they come to our sessions and they ask that question of, well, my son or daughter saying that everybody gets to go out to this place. Is that true? Mm-hmm. Or... My son or daughter tells me that everybody's curfew is at this time. And they feel that pressure because they don't want to be the only parent in the community who doesn't allow their child to move in the same direction as other parents. But is it accurate? And so there's this this silent pressure that exists in the community with these attitudes. And so what we try to do is provide them with the accurate information so they can make a more informed decision rather than just based on false ideas.
0: Fantastic. So one of the things we've got here is social norms theory. Mm -hmm. Can you... I'm not, I'm not going to even try. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, okay, so the social
1: problems <laughs> research, again, is is there's great videos, uh, Dr. Alan Burkowitz and, and Wesley Perkins are the founders of it from the 1980s and a lot of what they went out to do when it comes to substance use and abuse was to track what is actually going on at the college university levels in the United mm-hmm. States and what they were surprised to find was, you know, a generality would be is that about 20% of the population at the university that they studied was causing around 80% of the campus problems campus problems that included not only sexual assault, but violence, crime, and vandalism. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And so they actually then went out to see, does other communities look and fit the same um, kind of pattern? And they were shocked to find that there was a very noisy minority group of students on every campus that posed um, a lot of risk to themselves and to the entire environment, that landscape. So then they went and brought this into secondary schools, and that's where FCD, we've been really successful at tracking data since 2000s around um, international schools and schools across you know the world and the states that we actually find the same thing. The vast majority of kids will actually never use a substance. Right. The vast majority of kids are making very healthy, positive decisions in their lives, but unfortunately that vast majority is quite silent about it in the sense that we don't see kids running around campus saying, wow, I was so sober this weekend. I hung out with my mom and dad. I had lunch with my grandma. I read four chapters. Did you know s- uh, six pages of homework. Yeah they don't talk about or vocalize and they oftentimes don't get the attention that they should be having, um, but the kids who do get a lot of the attention are the ones who tend to get themselves in unhealthy situations, they engage in high-risk behaviors and they post it all over social media,
0: yeah.
1: It's what we see in the movies and, and, and media right now as well. So the key message we need to get out to our parents and our students is just
2: because people are talking about behaviors mm-hmm. doesn't mean to say they're actually happening. Exactly.
0: And do you find that those 20 percent? What I'm trying to say here are the 20 percent influencing the 80 percent?
1: Yes. So another part that research finds is that the students in a community that are drinking or using or taking any type of risk, they're very vocal and oftentimes they do have social power. And what we research is the kids who drink or use, they oftentimes present as very confident, and their own belief is, "I drink, everybody else does." Mm. What's fascinating on the flip side of that, students who choose not to use, um, making very positive, healthy choices, they oftentimes feel alone and isolated in that decision. And they tell us, I mean, I don't do it, but everybody else does. So both populations add to this exaggerated false perception. Interesting.
0: And would it be fair to say, you know, often schools around the world will say, oh, that's not a problem for us. Mm -hmm. But it sounds very much like this this model would fit garden... um, garden pretty well like it would with any other school we would likely see that those same kind of numbers playing out here
1: So the garden actually did have a survey data um, Years ago, and it highlighted the same it parallels exactly what we find in every school here in Malaysia or anywhere in the world that most kids actually Are making very healthy choices, mm. and that's the word we want to get out so What parents can really do is is to challenge their child when they hear these these exaggerated ideas talk to other parents and find out the truth, rather than just defaulting and, and falling to the lowest standard in the community around these false perceptions. Okay. Do you, I came from the UK
2: in August. Do you think we have an added complexity here in Malaysia with the laws that we have surrounding
1: drugs and alcohol? There's definitely a mixed message amongst the communities because of the policy and the, the multicultural uh, component that international schools have. And so it confuses individuals. But what I always say is that our overall goal is to keep the kids healthy. I think everybody in the community, regardless of what religion, what um, country they've come from, what the country's values are here, I think that is a common denominator goal. Is How do we keep kids healthy? Mm. And the next part of that is they are sending their children here to guard an international school for a very um, important reason, the education and the values and the mission. They believe in it. So we don't want to undermine what the school is doing to keep these kids safe and to educate them at their highest standard, help them reach their full potential, because statistically the only thing that takes individuals out of the game is oftentimes the situations that we're not talking about.
0: And when we don't talk about it, I'm guessing that that can lead to some pretty horrendous consequences.
1: Absolutely. Addiction, we say, is, is progressive. It's fatal in nature, if not addressed. Um, and part of that is we have to start talking about this as a health concern rather than a moralistic judging and criticizing, mm. um, lack of willpower type of conversation. And you know, in spite of the policies and the culture here, again, this is a health concern worldwide. It's not just here in Malaysia, but everywhere faces those same barriers. Mm. So how could a parent start that conversation? using non-judgmental language it's great when i talk about communication sometimes we think that the parents are the ones who have to lecture and educate when really communication there's two parts to it and part of it is listening and so i would say and i asked the the year sevens today how many have parents that have talked to them about this topic very few raised their hand but how many of you have heard about this topic and and learned (laughs) about it on your own Mm. almost all of them raised their hand Mm. And so they're getting this information from somewhere. And what I always say is is I encourage these young people to go home and educate the adults, because sometimes we recognize generationally they may not have received this information. Back then, we didn't have the technology um, to articulate what we know about it today. Mm -hmm. So part of that communication for parents today is to ask questions to the young people. And what you're really looking for is their attitude, Do they perceive that everyone's doing it? Do they think this is a cool and normal behavior? That's an opportunity to implant your own values and expectations. If that child is saying, no, this is not safe, I don't think anybody does this, you want to continue to track and assess that and make sure they have accurate information. And so part of that is parents do have to do some research. You don't have to be experts, but talk to other parents. Find out what's going on in the community. And so that way you are armed and prepared to have this conversation. Um, It's one thing that I always say in communities is we prepare for so many other things. Academics, we practice every day. Sports, we practice every day. Music, we practice every day. The one thing we fail to do on a regular basis is going to be talking about social skills, which they are faced with and tasked with every day, and we assume that they know how to do it. The hardest part for me is to see young kids as they transition really struggling with feeling safe in their environment, feeling connected with their community, feeling valued, understanding their own identity.
0: It's a really difficult time, isn't it? Yeah. Because, you know, we know from neuroscience that the front part of the brain isn't fully formed yet. (laughs) There's all sorts of um, emotions going on. There's all sorts of hormonal things going on. There's lots of peer pressure going on. And we also know that they can get their information from sources we don't want them to get necessarily their information from. I think an analogous thing I'm thinking of is... um, sex ed and pornography and if we don't open up that conversation then we may well be letting them become educated by a thing that we we really don't want them to be educated by.
1: That's exactly what I always tell parents if we don't talk about this issue to our youth today they're going to receive that information and they are receiving it 24 hours a day, 7 days a week from somewhere else and it may not be in line with what your family values and the healthiest perspective for them to have.
0: So we have to accept that?
1: We have to accept that If your child has a technology device, if you've allowed them to have a computer, laptop, iPad, cell phone, um, and you're not monitoring it especially, um, the landscape in their environment is is limitless. Mm. They have access to anything Mm. and we need to have these conversations.
2: So we're going to have many parents right now who are facing a situation where their young ones are going to go off to university all over the world over the next few months. Some of those parents, I would imagine, are going to be quite anxious about the choices their children are going to make when they get to university. What advice would you give the parents?
1: First, I think parents need to understand that um, a child's frontal lobe, like you said, is not fully developed until about the age of 25 or 30. So what that means is adults and parents, they have to be their child's frontal lobe until there's fully formed.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, nice <laughs> and the next part of that is, is the communication and listening and also holding them accountable. So as they transition, that freedom and that landscape is going to change. That's going to present a lot of stressors, even if your child says they have it. As as a counselor, the hardest thing working with youth and young adults is the challenges and not feeling understood, not feeling equipped with the skills or the confidence at that time. So they may sound like young adults, but again, they are still developing and learning. And so we have to be able to hold them accountable, role model for them, and continue to assess how they're really doing.
0: That conversation... Can be, and I'm sure, is for many parents, a really awkward one. The just how do you start that off, you know? And then I suppose when do you start that off? Intuitively, I'm thinking the earlier you start the conversations, the better. Um, I don't know if that's right. right but absolutely
1: right. right. The, the earlier you start this conversation, when a child is only four years old, and you're talking about sleep patterns and relationships and emotions, and continue that, it's going to be much easier to continue this conversation as. Their experiences change when it comes to technology, uh, when it comes to caffeine, uh, when they become exposed to or start seeing alcohol or tobacco, which really, if a child's ever been to an airport, they've probably already seen that. If they've been to a restaurant, they've seen alcohol and tobacco. Uh, and so we shouldn't be afraid of talking about what's already in their environment because we want them to have the most accurate information rather than you know, having them dissect it themselves. Um, as kids transition into universities, I'd say the, the most important thing is setting your values and communicating your expectations. But beyond that is how do you hold them accountable for that? Yeah. How are you checking in? It's not about having, I always tell parents this, is it's not about having one 60-minute conversation with a child. It's about having 61-minute conversations. So how often are you checking in with that expectation that you have set, that I, I expect that you make healthy, informed decisions and stay safe, but how do you know if they are? Mm. That's going to be the most important.
0: <laughs> I've got this image in my head, which is mildly disturbing, of my parents sitting me down as a <laughs> 16-year-old and going, right, James, let's talk about sex and drugs. Yeah. <laughs> he seems just <laughs> <it> cringing and <laughs> rolling up into a ball and thinking, I don't want to talk about that stuff with you. Um, that's got to be an issue that that parents are going to face. And um, and whilst I agree with everything in theory with, with what you're saying, it's just the practicalities of how do you, how do you break that first moment? Do you have any advice on? You
1: know. Framing the questions or giving a, a script sometimes is helpful to parents. So, I mean, one of the things is, the younger you started out this, it's going to be easier to mm-hmm. transition it. If you are just starting right now with this, is rather than lecture, because students are not, it's not lack of knowledge is the reason why they're going to take these risks. They have that part. They understand this is dangerous or unhealthy. Um, but it's the social connections. And so part of that is is assessing and asking them, you know, what challenges are you having right now with your friends? Or what's the most stressful thing with your transition? Mm-hmm very broad conversation kids will talk about what what they're facing and why college or university might be difficult or hard ask them about their successes Mm. what's going well (laughs) and why is that going so well and why are some things so difficult for you today how are you doing with your sleep Mm. what does that look like for you so rather than saying here's what you need to do because they know that But invite them to share what their life is really like, and you can have very you know broad um, topics. I would say the best thing though too is for a parent is sometimes you have to refrain whatever your child is saying. Take a deep breath before responding. Yeah. They expect you to lecture, and they expect you to to, to say the same thing they've heard numerous times before. That will shut them down. Mm-hmm. So I think what we were so successful at STD is our prevention specialists and is being able to, to evoke or kind of draw out some of their, their emotional responses, their experiences, without having to, to change it. Mm-hmm. And at the end, they might even ask, <laughs> well, what do you think? Oh, great. Or you, as a parent, could even say and just reflect, like, I've noticed that, you know, you're doing really well, and I've noticed that also you're in a new environment. That might be hard.
0: Yeah. And the way you're saying that is so natural and that's why I'm thinking anyway, <laughs> is it's like you just said like little conversations regularly and it's just like well see what we're talking about it's not a big deal rather than a big Yeah, you know it is a big deal you when know, it's about drugs
2: I think that's the key thing and I think that's why it's so good to get you in every year or every couple of years so that we can develop those relationships between you and the students and as a garden, and so that these conversations do become more natural. But something I'm thinking of is a parent might think, I can do all that while my child is here in Malaysia with me. Mm. What about when they move to Canada or Australia or the Mm. UK? What then? How can I make sure that my child is making those healthy
1: choices? Which is interesting because what I've seen so far is most of these kids have cell phones and internet. And that is a line of communication. I say face-to-face, Skype, WhatsApp, WeChat, wherever you are in the world, there is FaceTime, there is access. And I say one of the most successful things to help, help kids feel supported and hold them accountable is set a regular schedule. And whether that schedule is I want to talk to you at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning or I want to talk to you, you know, at 11 o'clock on Saturday afternoon every week. Mm-hmm. Um, That is holding them accountable and letting them know that you care, and you're taking away that time to support that child. Mm -hmm. And it's something that's consistent for them. And that's the other thing, too, is what adults role model, the consistency, and how they deal with things in life is exactly what that child is going to grow up doing. So it's never too late to start this and start this healthy pattern of communication. Um, it's similar to with younger kids, having family dinners. Research shows that consistency in that structure is very beneficial, checking out the child.
0: Mm, and a great place for a conversation. Exactly. So what, I've got two things that are in my head. One is, as parents, should we, I know what I think on this, but I'm interested in what you think. Um, should we be afraid to model our own mistakes? You know, I went out on Saturday night, had a little bit too much to drink, and I've woken up with a headache. I'm not feeling my best. Am I going to talk to my nine year old daughter about why I'm not feeling very well? Is that an appropriate conversation to have, or would you say not?
1: What happens if you don't have a conversation? What does that nine year old daughter interpret and take away?
0: Yeah, I would say grumpy dad, not cool. And I, I do, I'm, I'm hungover. <laughs> we'll talk about what that means and why that is. It's a
1: whole different direction um, of this conversation. <laughs> yeah, but... yeah, yeah. Sorry, it's not about me, it's not about my,
0: my. Um, But it's just, just an example because I think many parents wouldn't do that. My parents wouldn't
1: have done that me. Here's what I think the most important thing is they need to have it contextualized for them or explained to them. Yeah. And that's what we can do as adults. And that does take a lot of humility and courage. What you're doing is role modeling um, the consequences and also really setting the standard. Because oftentimes young people don't know when it's okay or when it's not okay, what's going to happen, what's not, lack mm-hmm. of expe- um, unknown expectations. Um, and so it leaves them very curious.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Why would somebody do this if they felt this way the next day? <laughs> yeah, and then why would they do it again? Yeah. So they're very curious. And At this point, you're evoking more curiosity by not talking yeah. about it. Because now I need to go figure this out for myself because I'm hearing mixed messages. I see someone else saying they're having a good time. They've never seen, I've never seen their parents like this. Mm. So is that true? Mm. But being able to talk about the level of risk when a young person uses alcohol, is quite different than when an adult would. Yeah. And anybody who uses, there's always going to be a level of risk. Mm-hmm. And so it's just supporting them, checking in with them too. Mm. See what they already know, which is interesting. As I worked with, uh, or one of our prevention specialists worked with, um, I guess it would be the eight-year-olds in like second or third grade in the US. And she had asked an open question to the class. She said, when do adults use alcohol? And a little boy raised his hand, really, really excited, because he knew the answer. And he said, when they take the coats off. And she had no idea what what that meant. And um, she asked for further explanation. And he very clearly articulated, well, my father always says, can I take your coat and what would you like to drink? She said, well, what are they drinking? And the little eight-year-old explained very clearly, what the, the adults were drinking. And he described it perfectly, and she said, well, what happens when they drink this? And they, he described very clearly that there was changes that happened. They get louder, they get sillier, mm. they yeah. uh, start to behave differently, and, and they lose their balance. Mm. And so having that conversation and explaining why is it riskier for a young person, it's still risky for adults, Does what's the expectation?
0: Yeah.
1: It's, it's gonna be important.
0: Okay, Emily, your thoughts on this? It is a bit of a minefield, isn't it? I think it I'm definitely in line with what you're saying.
2: Yeah, it absolutely is, because as an adult, as teachers, older um, students in school, we're all modelling the behaviours that we'd expect. Mm. And I'm thinking here, older siblings. So, for example, if we've got a child who's 10, 11, 12, and we've got an older sibling who's 17, 18, 19, who's exploring drugs, alcohol, tobacco... What behaviors are they teaching their younger siblings and what impact can that have? So, I think it's really, really important that the whole family is very open about what's happening and can have those conversations with each other so that the younger child
1: doesn't learn unhealthy behaviors at such a young age. Mm. Generally speaking, you brought up a good point with the siblings. Younger um, students who have older siblings, they oftentimes do have that exaggerated perception because they have that influence and in the stories that they're hearing at a younger age. And so for families that have you know, numerous kids, we want to really start talking about level of health and risk mm. at a younger age and really about just checking in. What is that family needs? can
0: talk about it together. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Is that framed differently
2: at each age? So would you broach the conversation differently for an 11-year-old compared to a 16-year-old?
1: Absolutely. So we, we always talk about age-appropriate language, <laughs> what they need to know. Um, and I'd always say, too, is, is check in and assess what your child already knows. What do you know about alcohol? more than they would expect. Exactly. What do you know about? I asked the, the year sevens, you know, what, t- what substances they're familiar with? What language do they already have? If your child has seen certain movies, they've probably seen, or even music today, mm. <laughs> 90% of music. Across all genres embed language around substance use or abuse and so they may not actually understand what it means but we want to assess so I think if you aren't somebody who's in education who has like kind of the the diagnostic kind of like structure of understanding what kids need to know we can send that to to community members because we want them to feel empowered to be able to review some of these topics the other one is is just ask your kids what do you guys know about alcohol let's sit down and watch a movie with them you may hate it but it's temporary, and ask them questions about it. Mm. Is there anything shocking about what they're listening to and what they're hearing in their music? Mm. Listen to Find out your child's favorite brand, um, a band, and, and listen to the entire album so you understand the language. And If you don't understand the words they're saying, ask your child. What does that even mean? Mm. Is this cool? <laughs> um, is this fun? And Is this popular right now? Do other kids listen to it?
0: But I'm coming back to your point earlier on where that conversation is going to be more powerful and effective. It's, if it's a natural part of the conversations that you might have at the dinner table rather than I want to talk to you about your music. Exactly. I can see how you get that really wrong. As a, as a, as
1: 61 parents. minute conversations. Find teachable moments. Yeah. Don't make it awkward, more awkward than it may already feel. Mm. Um, and we're just asking parents to check in. And we're also asking parents to, to connect with other parents. Yeah. Find out what other parents and families might be worrying about, hearing about because again it takes a village to raise a child yeah. and we don't want anybody to feel like they, they are lacking the confidence or the support and part of it too is parents can really support each other with role modelling, what have you gone through that's been difficult and how do I deal with this um, so you shouldn't feel like you're, you're dealing with this on your own anytime.
0: I wonder if and it is a wonder I wonder if many of our parents feel comfortable or would feel comfortable sharing a problem their son or their daughter has you know we've caught them drinking them um, smoking something that they shouldn't have been smoking, how comfortable they would be with sharing that information the potential stigma that might be attached to it, uh, especially in certain communities within our school. I think that would be probably more, more paramount than others. You know, so.
1: Here's, here's the, like you said, the stigma. The hardest thing with addiction, it just breaks my heart, is because this happened to me. My dad's Chinese, and my mom's Japanese. I mm. was raised in the States. If I had any other health issue, my parents would not have been silent about it. But exactly what happened is when I started using, my parents were embarrassed, and my dad actually took it upon himself and thought it was something he did as a bad parent. And so he believed this was a choice. He actually looked at me when I was sitting in treatment at the age of 17. He said, Carrie, why are you doing this? We didn't raise you this way. You need to stop. You're disappointing everybody in the family. And he viewed it really as I was, was a lack of willpower on my part. This was a decision that I was doing intentionally. And then also he was responsible. If I had any other health issue, if I had heart disease, cancer, diabetes, respiratory illness, anything going on, autoimmune disorder, I don't think he would have ever used those words. Mm. In fact, when I went off to treatment, my mom even looked at me and she says, that's okay, we'll just tell the family that you're away at camp. Mm. The embarrassment. Mm. And this happens at every school I go to where parents say, "You know, I think my child might be exploring this. And I would ask the parent, have you told the school? They are going to have great resources. They have trained individuals to support your child so nothing continues. And many parents will say, oh, no, 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 it's not that bad yet. Or I don't want to say anything. It's And they said two things. It's not that bad yet, knowing somewhere deep inside of them that this can progress and get worse. And the second one is they feel embarrassed. Mm-hmm. They have to understand that this is a health issue. If it was any other you know, health-related concern happening to your child, communities feel no embarrassment or shame. Yeah. They talk about it very openly. In fact, people come and support them as a community. When somebody has cancer, oftentimes they, they will reach out, and they want to vocalize instantly to school, and the school will put in um, support systems to help that child navigate this more safely. That's exactly what we're doing with, with addiction and any mental health. Is If somebody's using, they're already in trouble. What we need to do is come together as a community and talk about it so this child doesn't get into um, unhealth- more unhealthy risky situations. Mm-hmm.
0: And as a school, I mean, Emily, our our approach there would very much be a supportive and subtle one if if parents wanted to talk to us.
2: Absolutely. I mean, if it was um, tobacco, alcohol, drugs, anything, we would support students, we'd support parents. We've got an excellent counselling system, and counselling team that would help students through the decisions that they were making so that they could be more healthy. We actually do drug test students from year 10 upwards, so year 10, 11, 12, 13. And if we were to find something there, again, it would be a counselling approach and an education approach. And I think that's really, really important for everybody to know. We're here to help, we're here to make sure that students are making the right behaviours that will set them on the path for their future. Um, On this topic, you've mentioned a few sources where parents can go to for support. So you mentioned the school. Uh, You mentioned other parents. Is there anything else that parents could do if they were too embarrassed to make those public um, connections? Is there anywhere else they could go for support?
1: I think local um, resources that the school probably has information on to reach out to outside, you know, mental health um, clinicians or counselors. We also, there's online, there's a great resource too, I'll leave with the community. I can't think of the name off the top of my mind. Uh, But a lot of the international communities have had very positive outcomes from the online counseling landscape. Um, FCD.org, we also have a wealth of resources that you can always, any community member, parents, um, staff, uh, faculty can always email us any time of the of the year. And they can just address that to me, Carrie, K-A-R-I, and I will respond to any questions that, that communities have to ha- kind of hold their hand and direct them through this process. We don't want anybody to feel alone in this conversation.
0: So I think a lot of the outcomes that you've been speaking about there whilst we don't want them, there are they are understandable. Mm-hmm. I think in some of the where the, where some of those parents might come from, they're feeling embarrassed, the feeling that they've done something wrong. Um, whereas that can have the unintended consequence of making things worse, I can understand why they might feel like that. It must be quite. And society doesn't help, right? Exactly. Society is punitive in our attitude towards drugs and alcohol generally. We shun people, we imprison people, we pariah people out. Um, so we've got to do our best to to fight
1: that. You know, it's addiction as a disease what i always say is it's one of the ugliest diseases in the world today because it's the only disease where somebody who actually might have it they don't believe they do mm-hmm. and it's the only disease where somebody may actually reject help and support and treatment if you have anybody else who's having a heart attack they oftentimes don't like push back the paddles and say to the doctor I don't want the medication for this. I think I'm fine. Mm. So this is one of the only diseases also that has very repulsive symptoms to the community which makes it very confusing to understand. Yeah. And so people believe it like you said as punishable or punitive with, you know, disciplinary behavioral issues and And that's the part two is I've never seen a success story of somebody who's told me that they've used a substance and it's really working out in their benefit, that their Mm. health is improving, relationships are thriving, opportunities are just opening up. And I'm not saying at all that alcohol um, and other substances, everybody who uses it leads to addiction. But the bigger picture is is there are consequences and all use will equal risk. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So if we're having, trying to kind of sum all of this up because there's just some gold here, if there's if we're having regular conversations, if we're happy to talk about them from an early stage on, it's much less likely for that 20% to end up in a situation where, they're, where we're in addiction or, or serious abuse of, of drugs and alcohol. Is that, is that too simplistic?
1: I would say we're gonna support that child in making healthier decisions. They're not immune from that level of risk. Mm. But I will say though, if a child ever is in an unhealthy or risky situation, if you started that conversation and opened up that line of communication, that child is more likely to reach out and ask for help than they need to. Yeah. And that's what we do see consistently is even when kids falter and, and make mistakes, if that communication and a healthy adult is in their life, they will reach out, yeah. they feel safe.
0: That's my, that was my last question. You know, As a dad, I've got two girls. I know, it makes me uncomfortable, but I know, because I did, and every kid does, at some point they're going to make some bad choices, at some point they're going to do something that they regret or they shouldn't have done or whatever, just like I did as a kid, um, but then how do I react to that as a parent? Do I react in a supportive way or do I go the other way? I know. I know what we're going to say. But I think that's
1: so a... So since you say react, because that's the opposite of prevention. Yeah, yeah. True. yeah. <laughs> so reaction is intervention, meaning yeah. there's a problem and I have to fix this. Yeah. Prevention means what have I already talked about as far as the expectations with your daughters, as far yeah. as you know, if you are ever faced with this uh, difficult decision in life, What would you do? Mm. And what skills do you have? Mm. And what do you think I should do as a parent if you cross that line? Mm. And at the same time, you get to share what your expectation is. You know, I expect that you don't cross that line, and here's how I would feel, and here's what I would do in that situation. Mm. Because what's going to resonate is that if they are faced with that decision, they've had this conversation, hopefully your voice in that conversation pops into their mind they have one more reason mm. to continue to make a healthy choice and mm. message in that moment.
0: But if they don't, and, and I guess that's where my reaction is, so there is okay. a reaction to if they don't, then I, my natural instinct is I want to be in a situation where a child is happy to talk to me, mm. you know, I, I'm, I made a mistake, okay. and, let's, and we can talk about it, rather than I made a mistake, I'm going to disappoint Dad so much. Okay.
1: I'd say invite them into that cons- consequence again and say, just remind them we've had this conversation. Mm. Um, what do you think is fair? What's interesting is students really will sometimes <laughs> create a more, um, a higher consequence for themselves right. when given that you're empowering them, saying, you know, I, I recognize that this was a challenging situation. What do you think we should do? Invite them into the conversation mm. rather than just lecturing them and, and thinking that they can't do this on their own. We want to develop the skills for them. And so it's, it's again... Sometimes we want to just take that breath before we react in a situation. And it's absolutely okay for a parent to say, you know what, right now um, it's hard for me to talk about this. Can we set another time to come back and visit this issue? Yeah. You give yourself a time out.
0: And if it doesn't work first time, you know, that first yeah. conversation doesn't go so well when you're trying to talk about some of these things with your 15 year old. <laughs> I guess that's that you don't give up.
1: The accountability, I mean, what I'm hearing now is this we've had the conversation, <laughs> the communication is open, I'm assessed and I'm listening, and now how do I hold my child accountable? You know, I think part of that too is if this happens again, what do you have to do? What's going to be in place and what resources? I know schools have done a great job. And Garden says, you know, if this happens one more time, we're going to make sure that it doesn't and support you with that. Um, but if this does, we're going to expect that you follow up with a counselor so many times and that you connect with these resources and that, you know, that there might be more extra support in place with parent conversations because we don't want to see you continue to repeat this. And if it is repeating, and you're a family member who's saying, I think there might be a bigger problem get your child assessed there's nobody who's ever been harmed by having extra adult community support and and knowing um, where they fall on that continuum of level of risk Mm -hmm. an assessment will be a healthy adult trained in the field of addiction be able to look at signs and symptoms and again just like any other illness the earlier we can catch it the more successful we will be at being able to treat it we don't want to wait till it gets bad because that's where we see this real challenging uphill battle with why people will continue to relapse with addiction and behavioural issues, why people may never even find recovery. So your key message to us
2: is that we can do a lot to break down those barriers, Mm -hmm. break down those misperceptions of what is normal behaviour in those conversations that we're having at teacher level, parent level, student level, so that we can do everything we can to prevent addiction and make sure that people are making healthy
1: and wise choices. Yep, I, you know parents too. I think about around all health issues once a month, you know, or every week. Bring up a new topic: sleep patterns, stress, relationships and friendships, um, social environment. So movies, music, mm-hmm. um, substance use and abuse, and ask your child and assess them on all those levels. What's going on with movies this week? <laughs> what's going on in your social group? Is, what's stress like for you this week? How are you managing stress? Just checking in.
0: Mm-hmm. It's not the last thing. Okay. So can I just get the website again for people who... Absolutely.
1: FCD.org is our website, and at the very bottom is a link to you. You can email us. You, all adults and community members have free access to all of our webinars and e-journals. We don't uh, send out mass emails. It's about one every six weeks. So if you would like to sign up, just send me an email or send the organization an email with your email saying you'd like to be part of the webinars, and they are all hosted free. We have one tonight, actually. And if you sign up, you will get a pre-recording as well um, later. So because of the time difference, we realize communities might mm. be asleep. So there's one tonight on teen technology. So again, if you would like, please sign up.
0: Fantastic. Um, Emily, do you have any
1: Thank you very much questions? for your time
2: and your honesty. It's been really, really refreshing and valuable
0: to discuss those things with you today. Great to have an open chat. I've got so many questions I want to carry on. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll let you I'll let you get on. You're running sessions for this week. It's fantastic to have you in like everyone says, yeah, talking about opening open and honestly and some great messages. There. Thanks so much. Thanks for thanks for coming on.